0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is your host, Brian Anderson. I'm the editor of City Journal. Two years into office, President Trump has already filled two Supreme Court seats with Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, creating the first conservative majority on the nation's highest court in a half century. To talk about how the Trump administration is reshaping the federal courts, we'll be joined today by James Copeland. His piece in the new winter 2019 issue of City Journal, co-authored with Ralph Manguel, is called Toward a Less Dangerous Judicial Branch. It'll be up on the website this weekend, so I hope you check it out. Our conversation with Jim begins after this. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Jim Copeland. Jim is a senior fellow and director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute, and his essay in the winter 2019 issue of City Journal, co-authored with Ralph Manguel, is called Toward a Less Dangerous Judicial Branch. Jim, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: We have two new conservative justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, as I mentioned in the introduction and as everyone knows. But before we get to them, how is the Trump administration doing in getting judges approved to the other federal courts? And maybe give a breakdown of the different courts you know disposition uh, to non-lawyers. Sure.
1: Uh, it's an important point to, to point out. And as we point out in our our piece everyone's very focused on the judiciary, the Supreme Court as the highest court of the land, the ultimate court of appeals, of course, being the most important. And two of nine justices is a large percentage of the Supreme Court, given only two years, and that these are lifetime appointees. But when you look at the lower courts, uh, you, you particularly we wanted to focus most on the U.S. Courts of Appeal, which are in effect uh, the the last court of appeal in a lot of cases. We hear about the hot uh, hot-button issues that go before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, but there are tens of thousands of filings annually through the federal appellate courts. The Supreme Court's only going to issue a merits ruling on 70 or 80 a year. So by and large, most uh, qu- cases are decided at the U.S. Court of Appeals. And, and the Trump administration has has focused on this. Uh, it, they've, they've been very successful with a with Republican majority in the Senate, of course. Uh, Harry Reid ended the filibuster for these judicial confirmations uh, to to expedite uh, confirmations under the Obama administration. Uh, So Mitch McConnell's been very... very aggressive and and trying to make sure that the committee, the Judiciary Committee, expeditiously moves through the nominees that the Trump administration is putting forward. And, And through the end of November, what we looked at in our piece, the Trump administration had successfully appointed, had gotten Senate confirmation for 29 out of the possible 166 authorized active judgeships in the 12 regional courts of appeal, which is a high percentage. And, and by comparison, if you look at Barack Obama at the same point in time in his presidency, uh, he'd gotten 11 confirmations, George W. Bush 12, Bill Clinton a little more success with the Democratic Congress there, but but 19. So so relative to recent uh, peers, uh, the Trump administration has, has done very well at getting these appellate judges confirmed. Now, the district court judges, the trial judges, have uh, been not quite as fast a pace uh, a little faster than Obama through the end of November, it was fifty-three out of out of all the district court uh, judgeships available, uh, which is is more than the thirty that Barack Obama got, but, but a slower pace than we saw for Bush and Clinton, but but clearly these appellate court judges have been prioritized, and I think that's the right strategy, and the administration has been very successful there.
0: Your essay looks at the different approaches to constitutional interpretation of these judges. Um, and it's it's not a kind of uniform ap- approach. Maybe you could say a little bit about that to our listeners. Uh, there There's at least two different strands of constitutional interpretation, right?
1: So as we as we point out in our piece, uh, the, the conservatives are right of center. Uh, judges and scholars aren't monolithic in their approach. Now, none of these judges and justices that the Trump administration uh, is picking are likely to be uh, paradigms of the progressive model, reading the tea leaves of society, evolving mores of decency, uh, and and these sorts of uh, really progressive types of approach to reading the constitution. Uh, But but, but, but really uh, the evolution of thought here Uh, on the right uh, has has changed somewhat over time. And by that, I mean the early sort of critics of the Earl Warren court that were dramatically expanding the scope of legal rights. uh, Those of us who are critical of that, uh, would suggest in ways that were really untethered from the Constitution's text and structure and history. Uh, they, they were focused on judicial restraint. Alex Bickel, uh, his famous book, "The Least Dangerous Branch," uh, which is sort of the the uh, going off place for our title, focused on the countermajoritarian difficulty of having these unelected judges resolving policy questions and. That sort of school of thought evolved and evolved into the the originalism uh, that we think of uh, as predominant on the right, uh, articulated most clearly by Robert Bork, uh, who was uh, a, a professor at Yale, the Solicitor General, a D.C. Circuit judge, and ultimately unsuccessfully nominated to the court, of course, in 1987 by Ronald Reagan uh, in sort of the... The, the really launching pad of the modern judicial confirmation fights, um, Bork, like Bickel, was very much in this restraint model. But but some scholars, subsequently, including Randy Barnett at Georgetown Law School, have developed a a a a more judicial engagement sort of approach uh, that that says, well, the the original Constitution was fairly active in wanting to limit the federal government and had a lot of sort of libertarian property rights and economic principles in particular, but not limited to those uh, in the actual text and history as it was understood at the time. And so this current of originalism uh, has, has gained more favor. It's still a minority view. And, and, and that's what we see when you look at the, the actual judges at this court of appeals level appointed uh, by by President Trump, you see folks like Don Willett, formerly of the Texas Supreme Court, uh, who's very much in this judicial engagement Uh, sort of mindset uh, that that Barnett has articulated and really sort of took on a little bit uh, the Chief Justice's approach, which is more of a restraint approach, Chief Justice Roberts of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in in, in some of his opinions. And so we talk about that a little bit here. There's not a a single uh, way that all the judges can be expected to behave, except all of them are going to be looking significantly at the Constitution's history and structure and text uh, in, in trying to dis- discern what it means, not just looking at evolving notions of morality in society or what have you.
0: Moving on to the new Supreme Court justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, they've both attracted an enormous backlash. As again, everyone knows from the left, Kavanaugh's hearing uh, caused uh, really uh, uh, perhaps unprecedented firestorm, even going back to the Bork, uh, the Bork hearings. Um, Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about the background of these two judges, how they fit into that uh, schema you just laid out, and what we know about their work on the bench to date. And, you know, uh, as an extension of that, what what does the conservative majority on the court mean uh, for the court itself and for the country going forward?
1: I mean, both of these judges uh, have a lot of similarities in in one respect. I mean, they were contemporaries at Georgetown Prep. Uh, All of us uh, probably learned more about Georgetown Prep than we ever wanted to know in the Kavanaugh hearings, if we were following it, Uh, but this sort of uh, Tony Catholic uh, private school in the DC area. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, a couple years younger than Brett Kavanaugh at the time, his His uh, mother was actually the EPA administrator administrator under Ronald Reagan. Uh, He went on to study at Harvard. Uh, did extraordinarily well. They got a PhD at Oxford. Uh, has written a lot of of really thoughtful work uh, in judicial philosophy, uh, and and but but his his most of his public career and his judging has been sort of out in uh, the 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 hinterlands, out in Colorado, the so-called flyover country. Uh, and you can see that coming through somewhat in his opinions. Brett Kavanaugh, whose mother was a judge, whose father was was a lawyer and a lobbyist in the in the D.C. area, went on to, to Yale and Yale Law School, uh, and then has been sort of a creature of D.C., worked in the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, uh, worked under Ken Starr, and has been a fixture, really, on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, where he's really influenced the body of law, not only among his colleagues on the D.C. Circuit, but at the Supreme Court level. I, I think if you look for a common thread with these two justices, apart from uh, sort of the, the obvious history and, and, and uh, the, the, the comportment that they have, et cetera, uh, it, it would be that both are skeptics of what, what I call the, 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 the administrative state. Uh, I wrote about that uh, in the summer issue of, of the City Journal, and both of them have been skeptical of some of these Supreme Court opinions. Uh, that have enabled bureaucrats in the executive branch in Washington really to make and shape the law as well as just enforce it really sort of neutered the power of Congress that the founders uh, intended to be uh, vested with, with lawmaking. So so what I would expect uh, from these two justices in particular uh, is some intellectual leadership on the court for how do we uh, claw back at some of these judicial opinions uh, that have, have really facilitated. Uh, this behemoth uh, in the regulatory state in Washington, and and we see some cases coming down the pipeline, you know, in this term uh, that that may uh, give us an idea of where they're going to go there.
0: A final question: More court seats, Supreme Court seats, could open in the next two years. It's certainly not inconceivable. Giving President Trump uh, further selections, who are the leading candidates in your view, uh, if that happens?
1: It's, it's hard to know, uh, other than what we can sort of discern from the, 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 the last search process, but they may be looking at different things. Uh, the, the Senate is a little bit more Republican now, although the, the Democrats took the House. The Republicans picked up a little ground in the Senate. Um, the battle will be even more pitched if that's conceivable. Uh, you suggested that this is the, at the outset, you suggested this is the, the first conservative majority. Well, that kind of depends how you count Anthony Kennedy. A lot of people, he's, a, he's a, the swing voter, so to speak, on the court, uh, on some of the gay rights decisions and abortion decisions. He certainly came down with the more progressive justices. But on a lot of cases, he was, he was a Reagan appointee, and in a lot of cases he was fairly conservative, so it wasn't a huge tipping of the court uh, to, to, to fill the, the Scalia and Kennedy seats. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat uh, were to come available on the other hand, uh, it, it would dramatically change sort of uh, the, 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 the look of the court. A lot of these five-four decisions might become six-three decisions, and the chief justice wouldn't uh, have the ability to sway uh, the outcome if the other five justices uh, we're voting in a certain direction. So, um, one I would keep an eye out for sure if it were the Ginsburg seat is Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who uh, comes out of Notre Dame uh, again, coming out of the sort of flyover country, but but an exceptional academic pedigree. Clerk for Justice Scalia, uh, engendered a bit of a, a firestorm when she was appointed to the Court of Appeals when Feinstein. Uh, talked about the dogma within her, referring to her deep Catholic faith. Uh, Of course, given that, and given that she's written on stare decisis, which is where the court uh, draws on its own precedence, uh, the the forces uh, supportive of Roe v. Wade would be aggressively against her. Uh, The flip side of that is, though, I I think some of the issues that that surfaced during the Kavanaugh hearings uh, would be extremely unlikely to surface. For a female nominee, uh, you wouldn't be able to, to, to it'd be very unlikely to suggest that a female had um, you know, been involved in something uh, and someone certainly with, with, with Barrett's pedigree involved in something uh, that, as was alleged, uh, the sorts of things that we saw with Kavanaugh, uh, with Thomas. So so I would keep an eye out for but she's certainly not the only nominee on the last short list. And I think any of the ones uh, that have been talked about would be very strong nominees for the court.
0: Don't forget to check out Jim's excellent piece from the new issue, Toward a Less Dangerous Judicial Branch. It'll be out this weekend on our website, www.city-journal.org. You can follow... Jim Copeland on Twitter, at James R. Copeland, C-O-P-L-A-N-D. We would also love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter, at City Journal. Lastly, if you like our show and want to hear more, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Jim, for joining us. Thank you.